Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world, with the MD, Dr. DJ Verrett. Greetings and welcome to Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett, and this week we have a special series of interviews with researchers who've looked at the effects of private equity investments in healthcare. Our first researcher is Dr. Eileen Applebaum, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research and a fellow at Rutgers University. Dr. Applebaum recently published some of her research that looked at the evolution of investment of private equity in healthcare, as well as some of its economic effects. We'll talk to Dr. Applebaum about her research right after this. Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. Today, I'm talking with Chris Hansen of Alliance Bank. And Chris, with mortgage interest rates so good, what should we talk about in refinancing? Yeah, DJ, thank you so much for having us. Given the historically low interest rate environment we're in today, it's certainly a great time for a homeowner, a business owner, a commercial real estate owner to revisit uh, their current interest rate structure on any transactions uh, they may have with their bank or mortgage company. Uh, We can assist on both sides of that, residential and commercial. Uh, We approach uh, all of our lending on a relationship basis uh, so we get to know our customers. We are definitely a long-term vision type of company. Uh, We've been 95 years in Texas, Texas only bank, and pleased to serve this Collin County market from my office as well as contiguous counties. And if physicians are interested in contacting you, what's the best way to get in touch? Office email address, chansen, C-H-A-N-S-E-N, at alliancebank.com. And for more information about Alliance Bank, check them out on the web at alliancebank.com. Welcome back to Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett, and today we have the great pleasure of talking with Dr. Eileen Applebaum, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research and a fellow at Rutgers University about private equity in healthcare. Dr. Applebaum, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Obviously, a lot of acquisitions in healthcare from private equity and, and a pivot that I've seen at least from, uh, from hospital base to more outpatient Can you tell our listeners, kind of give us a background of your experience and and what brought you to researching private equity in healthcare? Sure, sure. So I have a long background in looking at uh, employment uh, relations, those kinds of issues from both the employer and the employee side. So I published a book co-authored called Manufacturing Advantage in 2000 that looked at the new kinds of practices that were being introduced in manufacturing at that time and what the effects of them were both on workers and on employers. Uh, Why did some employers introduce those practices, for example, and what was the payoff? Uh, I've looked at paid family leave, uh, again, looking at it in California with a survey of employers and employees uh, to see the effects on both. It's easy to predict the effect on employees, but how did employers uh, deal with it and what were their experiences? So I have a long interest in these kinds of questions. And uh, as I was uh, continuing to research them, what I discovered is that when you look at these relationships, you think that they are between the employees in in a, a, a business and the employers or the managers in that business. 
And it became increasingly clear that in many of these cases, at that time, especially in retail and manufacturing, if you go back uh, to uh, uh, the, that earlier period, that there was, a, uh, there was somebody behind the screen pulling the strings in those uh, 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 negotiations over those kinds of relationships. And uh, I came to understand that private equity played a large role uh, in many of these companies. And I wanted to understand what private equity was all about. And I have to say, it's a very complicated question. And so I have a co-author and the two of us worked from 2010 until uh, the book was published in 2014, studying the industry and trying to understand it. The book is called, uh, 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 oh my God. it's a private equity at work when Wall Street manages Main Street. And we were not mainly looking at healthcare at that time. And subsequently, we've taken a look uh, in, a, in a report that was just published by the Institute for New Economic Thinking, uh, looking specifically at healthcare. Uh, so these are complicated uh, stories to tell, and uh, it takes quite a bit of digging to find them. Uh, I want to say one thing about the work on private equity. Uh, it turns out that most of the private equity deals are made by smallish private equity funds and firms, and they buy, they purchase, or acquire smallish companies at the lower end of the middle market. And in those situations, private equity has a lot to offer. And our book is as balanced as we could make it. We sought out the good cases. The, the bad cases are easy to find. You read about them in the newspaper or in the bankruptcy proceedings. But the good cases uh, are, are, are more difficult to, uh, to get your hands on. But we did find that many of these smallish private equity firms actually did what is advertised. They improved operations, they introduced new technology, they put people on the board of the acquired company that know how to market nationally, know how to market globally, and it was a win-win-win all the way around. So I wanna be clear uh, that that certainly happens and your listeners should know that they may be dealing with a small private equity firm and the story will be very different than what you see when you're looking at a Blackstone or a KKR. Uh, and um, the other side of that is that it's, while most of the deals are, in, are these uh, smallish firms uh, making, buying smallish companies, most of the money goes into big companies, big private equity firms buying big companies like Toys R Us or like a hospital chain, uh, uh, buying up a lot of healthcare providers uh, and in those cases, uh, in order to make money uh, and get out in a few years, you basically see a lot of financial engineering uh, and a lot of practices that may seem maybe legal. I'm not saying anything illegal is being done, but maybe doubtful. You may want to wonder whether you would like to hook up with that. So just to, just to be fair to the industry, there are lots of good examples, but the big private equity firms provide us with a lot of examples that are not so good. You mentioned the report that just came out and, and I read it. It was, it was a fascinating read. It was just over a hundred pages, but um, to see the, the research that you guys put into it and the evolution that you outlined of private equity, particularly in healthcare, which is obviously what most of our listeners are interested in, uh, was just fascinating to me. 
when you when you looked at that uh, when you looked at the healthcare space, what's the goal of private equity in these healthcare acquisitions, and, and kind of how have you seen them start achieving those goals? Right. So we looked at the large private equity firms, which were buying up lots of providers, both hospitals and then later uh, uh, doctors practices and, and uh, other parts of the of the industry, like revenue cycle management. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the old fashioned term for revenue cycle management is bill collecting. And uh, that's a lot of what they of, of what those uh, organizations do. But uh, we began with the hospitals because uh, actually we began studying healthcare, uh, private equity and healthcare, even though we didn't get around to writing this until recently, we began studying it in, in 2010 uh, because it seemed to us that nobody makes money in hospitals. So that was our impression. I have other ideas about that now, but anyway, our initial pre- impression was that nobody makes money in hospitals. How do private equity expect to make money? And uh, it was a time to look at it because there was a lot of activity in the years just before that. Uh, HCA went public in 2006. It made a ton of money. HCA had, uh, for for, uh, Bain Capital and the other private equity investors, and Bain Capital, which had wanted to to sell it earlier, uh, actually, they sold it in 2011. They, They bought it in 2006. But... They, they took money out of the hospitals. I don't know whether your listeners know what a dividend recapitalization is all about. I think they may be familiar with the fact that when private equity buys uh, any company, it buys it with lots and lots and lots of debt. And it is the company and not the private equity firm that's responsible for repaying the debt. Uh, and so uh, HCA was already highly indebted. They couldn't sell it in their preferred time frame. Uh, and they, but they, they like to have what they call liquidity events. They like to be able to give money back to the uh, private equity uh, investors in their funds. And so uh, they do something called a dividend recapitalization. They go into the junk bond market and they have the uh, company, in this case HCA, sell junk bonds at high interest rates. And then they take that money and they use it to pay themselves a dividend. That's a dividend recapitalization. So uh, Bain and the other private equity investors in HCA had already made lots of money uh, before they uh, actually sold the company back to the public markets. And then they made money on that. So other private equity firms looking at that said, hey, if they could do it, we could do it. And then the second thing was, uh, this was... Uh, we already knew that we were going to get the Affordable Care Act by 2010. It was pretty clear even a little bit earlier than that, even though it didn't fully go into effect until 2012. But many, many uh, private equity firms believed that uh, the the Affordable Care Act was supposed to reduce costs and maintain uh, quality. And there were many, many things going on in teaching hospitals and other big hospitals that got very high reimbursements on Medicare and Medicaid payments, especially the teaching hospitals. And they thought that they would be able to uh, attract those patients. If if Obamacare was going to work the way it was advertised, then people who had broken a leg or had some more routine uh, services that they needed from a doctor uh, would come to their local hospital. 
and not run downtown to the teaching hospital. Uh, but that did not materialize. So uh, whatever their calculations were, they bought up these hospital chains. Uh, we, we, there are three big uh, private equity firms in this space, Cerberus with the Stewart Hospital chain, uh, Leonard Green with uh, Prospect Medical Holdings, and Apollo uh, with, I think it's called RCCH at this point. Oh, it's called LifePoint at this point. It's gone through a number of, of uh, names. Uh, but in any case, these are the big players, and none of them is making a whole lot of money out of this, uh, except to the extent that, uh, so, so Stewart was not making much money for Cerberus at all. Uh, uh, Leonard Green took a lot of money out of uh, Prospect by, by uh, these dividend recapitalizations, uh, and Apollo has... Uh, continue to be invested in these smaller uh, hospitals. And I wish them a lot of luck because we need those smaller safety net and rural hospitals. Uh, but uh, Cerberus, it was a money losing deal for the, I should say there were other private equity firms that put up other chains. They could never make money taking them public. They could never get a share price they wanted and they could never sell them to a strategic acquirer because they had too much debt on them. They ended up selling them to other private equity firms. So uh, Stewart bought IASIS, uh, the Apollo one bought, uh, bought Capella, uh, and so on. And so uh, we ended up with these three really big private equity firms, and they were not really able to make money. And so in the end, they partnered with uh, a, a medical a re called Medical Properties Trust. And they made their money by selling, they made their money back by selling the real estate on the hospitals that they bought to Medical Properties Trust. And in the case of Stewart, which I know the best, Medical Properties Trust then partnered with, they, they put, with Stewart. They, they put equity into Stewart. They gave them money to do more acquisitions. And Stewart has been on a buying spree since then. Uh, so uh, it's really gotten to be quite large with many, many employees, hospitals across many states. And uh, never really, the money is being made on the real estate somehow. Uh, it never really made money as a hospital chain. So these are some, uh, you know, some of the complications. And a lot of private equity firms seeing this decided they don't want to be anywhere where CMS could make decisions about how much they would be paid for anything that they did. And they got into other things. A big area that they got into, as I'm sure you know, is buying up doctors' practices uh, in specialties that uh, take place within hospitals, mainly, like emergency room, anesthesiology, uh, radiology, uh, mostly those kinds of uh, practices. And uh, Envision and Team Health, uh, Envision owned by KKR and Team Health owned by Blackstone, they've bought up tons and tons of practices. Uh, they now uh, supply at least a third, the last time I looked, it was a third of the uh, doctor's practices that practice in hospitals. So uh, they were, they, they've been very aggressive in buying up doctor's practices. Uh, they make their money. It's, it's, it's not a mystery how they make their money. Uh, once they own these practices and they have supplied them to uh, hospitals that are must-haves uh, in healthcare plans, uh, then they are able uh, 
Uh, they, they, they drive a hard bargain. In the case of Envision, they typically do not go into network. They are not part of any network. And they make their money doing surprise medical billing. And in the case of Team Health, they use the threat of being able to go outside uh, any network uh, to negotiate much higher uh, uh, prices for the services they provide uh, compared to what have been negotiated or what have been paid by insurance companies previously. Uh, there's a really uh, good study by Zach Cooper and his colleagues at Yale University uh, documenting in great detail what happens to prices uh, of emergency room care uh, once the docs that are uh, running the emergency department uh, are uh, on the payroll of, uh, uh, of Envision or Team Health. So we know for sure that they make their money by driving up uh, these kinds of uh, prices to either consumers through surprise billing or through uh, threatening insurance companies that they will use surprise billing. They will go out of network and use surprise billing. Uh, so that, of course, has excited a lot of interest in Congress about ending surprise billing. And uh, we can see what happened. So as I mentioned, when private equity buys a company, it puts the debt, or, or, or forms a company in these cases, uh, it puts the debt on that company. And so Envision and Team Health, which are advertised as management services organizations, we can talk about that more uh, later on in this conversation. But anyway, as management services organizations, the debt is on them. And uh, Envision is carrying more than $5 billion in debt. And uh, Team Health is carrying more than uh, $2.5 billion in debt. And uh, although uh, things owned by KKR and Blackstone rarely are distressed debt, everybody thinks this is pretty safe. Uh, what happened is when Congress began debating this is that the uh, debt of both those companies fell below uh, 80 cents on the dollar, which means they fell into distressed territory. Now they recovered somewhat when Congress went home uh, without including this last December, uh, and it's unlikely to come up at this time in the middle of a, uh, a period of uh, other kinds of distresses and problems to deal with. But um, so the debt recovered somewhat, but it made it really clear that the, uh, the uh, creditors who hold the debt of Envision and Team Health understand that their ability to repay that debt depends on their being able to charge more for their, the services of their doctors than anybody else is able to charge. And that differential is what allows them to pay down the debt. So, or, or to be able to pay the debt is, uh, some of this are balloon payments. You're gonna pay it all at once at a certain point in time. And the creditors are really afraid that if uh, a bill to really limit a surprise medical bill goes through, that that debt is never going to be worth 100 cents on the dollar. So um, that's how they made it, the money in hospitals. And, and the reason they can do that is you shove up in the emergency room. I think the last question you, you say, doctor, save my life. The last question you ask is, are you in my network? If the hospital is in your network, I think the assumption on the part of most patients is that every doctor they will see is in their network. And so they are really surprised when they get those surprise bills. 
anesthesiologist. You meet your anesthesiologist at 5.30 in the morning on the day of your surgery. And uh, they hand you a sheaf of papers to sign and you sign them. You're not thinking anything about it, but in that bunch of papers is something that says, I'm gonna bill you separately. I'm not liable for anything bad that happens to you. Good luck <laughs> in your <laughs> Uh, and of course, radiologists, it's a similar situation. So initially, that's what they bought, uh, and that's how they made their money. We can go on and talk about other things that I, I know you have more questions. Yeah, I, I'd like to focus a little bit more on, the, on kind of the recent acquisitions in some of the outpatient markets. But one thing you said I want to touch on real quick you, you mentioned that HCA did not make the time frame that the private equity wanted. Um, what is the time frame for these investments by the private equity groups? They like to sell them in three to five years. So, and one of the things in the in your paper that I that kind of was a concrete subject that I generally knew is that private equity is focused on that three to five year time frame and not necessarily the ongoing operations of the company. Correct. That's right. That's right. Uh, and you can see that that the operations of the company, uh, they certainly don't want companies they own to fail. I, I, absolutely, they don't want them to fail. But what they are most focused on is having those companies provide money that they can distribute back to their investors. They, are, they have pr promised investors outsized returns. Remember, if you invest in a private equity fund, you have tied your money up for at least 10 years. Uh, you uh, have all kinds of uh, risk there. You don't know the fact that you committed the money. They, they don't take the money on the day you committed it. They call the money whenever they see an advantage and they distribute the returns whenever it suits them. So you have no idea when they're going to call that money and you have no idea when you're going to see a return. So, so these are risks to you as an investor. And if an investment is really risky, then the investor expects a premium. And so private equity wants to provide returns to its investors that exceed what they could have gotten by investing in the stock market. Uh, we can talk about that too, but <laughs> the, whether they perform as advertised even in financial terms uh, is, a que is questionable. But in, in any case, that's their goal is to make outside returns. So they need to make more than just the normal profit uh, on these hospitals. Uh, and these are, generally speaking, community-type hospitals, uh, often uh, even rural uh, or hospitals that are in suburbs or in rural areas. Um, uh, so uh, uh, it, it, they don't have uh, other means of making this extra money. It's not, like a, it's not like the Cleveland Clinic, which would never sell itself to private equity, but the Cleveland Clinic, as the, probably your listeners know, uh, has had a commercial arm uh, for, uh, since 2000 uh, that uh, has made tons of money for the hospital. Uh, it doesn't need private equity at all. But uh, uh, the hospitals that private equity typically buys don't have th those abilities. Uh, often, however, because of their location in a suburb, uh, sometimes uh, in a desirable uh, smaller community. Uh, in case, it's a rare case like Hahnemann Hospital in Philadelphia, where the real estate was so much more valuable 
than anything anybody could do with a hospital. That uh, it was pretty clear why they had bought it. But um, yeah, that's uh, that that's their goal is to make a lot, a lot of money uh, and to be able to sell in a three to five year time frame. This has not been possible for private equity owned hospitals after HCA. One other one other uh, vocabulary term that you used in your paper was dry powder, and and the concept that private equity has a certain amount of money that they need to invest before they can actually go and raise more money, and they're only making money on invested money, so they're always looking for a new deal. Can you can you kind of explain that a little bit more for us? Sure. So. Let me just correct one thing. The large private equity firms raise a new fund every two or three years. They don't wait for the 10 years. You never know how they're performing when you invest in their next fund. So just to clarify that. Uh, but dry powder refers to those commitments. Remember I said that uh, if a, a, an investor, a pension fund or a wealthy individual or a sovereign wealth fund or an insurance company or or an endowment like at your university uh, wants to invest in private equity, they make a commitment uh, and they immediately begin paying management fees on that commitment. They don't wait till the money's invested. Uh, the, uh, the private equity fund takes 2% each year of whatever was committed. So 20% of the money that is committed by a pension fund or an endowment or whatever, uh, over the 10-year period goes to, as management fees, directly to the private equity firm. But in any case, um, the other 80% uh, is waiting around to be called. Well, money that has been committed but has not yet been called is what we call, is what is termed uh, dry powder. And if we look globally, uh, right at this exact moment, because they're having a lot of trouble figuring out where to put their money, private equity firms have $2 trillion in dry powder. And in the U.S., it's probably about $1.3 or $1.5 uh, trillion in dry, equity, uh, in dry powder. So it's a lot, a lot of money. Uh, and the uh, investors have to keep that money liquid. So when they calculate your return, from investing in private equity, they don't calculate the fact that you have had to spend uh, five years, uh, as much as five years uh, with that money in some liquid form that you can then quickly uh, provide to the private equity firm when they call it. Uh, and uh, uh, so this greatly distorts uh, what the returns are to begin with, but in any case, uh, that's what dry powder is. We have a lot of it available right now. Private equity is looking to buy up all kinds of things going forward. We can talk about what that is. And a lot of that, they like to do what they've already done and what they know will work. And buying up doctor's practices is something they know a lot about. Well, and, and that's what I'd like to turn to in, in our last few minutes here is with that idea of so much dry powder, uh, you know, I've seen, I'm facial plastic surgeon, dermatologist refer to me a lot. I've seen a lot of private equity acquisitions in that space. But yes. as we were talking offline, 
you had mentioned, there's, there's a real potential post-COVID to see even more private equity in outpatient practices for several reasons. So, yeah. Yes, First of all, that's what they want to do. They've, they, they, any, any in-hospital practices uh, that could be bought have already been bought. So that's no, no opening for them. And so they've moved into dentistry and dermatology. They moved into that pretty early. Uh, and now they're moving into OBGYN, orthopedics. They've got tons of dry powder. They expect to be able to buy up companies. Uh, and there are two places that they're looking. They're looking for a, 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 a doctor's practice where the founders are aging out and are looking for a liquidity event and a way to get out and make money. And they are looking at the startup practices, young doctors who have invested a lot in technology and systems and so on in order to be able to serve their patients better and have gone into debt in order to do that. And now the pandemic has thrown all of those calculations off. The PPP loans that many doctor's practices did get can only be used for uh, paying your staff, paying your utilities, uh, paying your rent or your mortgage. They cannot be used to pay debt on equipment or anything like that. And so you're going to have a lot of these younger practices that are in a really bad situation. They're going to face a choice in many cases between losing their practice or selling out to private equity. And private equity thinks that lots of them are going to want to sell. And uh, it's, it's more complicated. You can, if you are a private equity owned doctor's practice, you cannot charge more than uh, the going rates in your community for your services. It's not like you were t- taken to an emergency room bleeding and you have to deal with whatever's there. You can choose your dermatologist, you can choose your dentist, your OBGYN, your orthopedist. And uh, so the way that they make money uh, is in the incentives they provide doctors. This is, this is really disturbing. Uh, and I'm not saying that, as I said at the beginning, a small private equity firm is not the ones that are doing this. Uh, it's the really big private equity firms buy up a lot of these doctors' practices, put the doctors internally in competition with each other. Uh, they, they emphasize productivity. They tell you what the wage they're paying to you is relative to the money that you're bringing into the practice. And there's a lot of pressure in that situation to bring more money in. Uh, and of course, you know that the only ways of doing that are to order more tests than you might really need. Hopefully not, but sometimes for, uh, perform more, more procedures than are needed, replace doctors with physician's assistants or nurse practitioners who often will call for more tests and so on because they don't have the knowledge and the experience to be able to make a definitive uh, diagnosis on their own. Uh, so they call for them because they need them, but they need them because they're not doctors. Uh, so they're, they're the, all of those kinds of things uh, hopefully not too many unnecessary uh, procedures, uh, and uh, this, can, this can be uh, very difficult. Uh, I know for sure that this has happened in dentistry because we have really uh, a good case study there written up uh, uh, by USA Today, uh, and uh, in that case, everybody was disappointed. The dentists who signed up we're not signing up to be under such pressure to produce. Uh, the uh, uh, partners who sold to private equity 
thought there was going to be a liquidity event at the end. They did sell a North America Dental Group to a British uh, organization, which looks a lot better uh, place to be. But uh, even, even the doctors who sold the practice and were told that they would have a liquidity event were disappointed in what they got because these things are not spelled out. You know that you have a stake in the private equity fund, but you don't know what share of the fund your stake is, and you don't know how many other dentists are in that same little pool. And so the amount of money that particular dentists got when it was sold, who had sold the practice and were promised a liquidity event, was much less than they ever expected. So there was disappointment all around, not to mention patients who had unnecessary procedures uh, who were definitely disappointed. Dr. Applebaum, thanks so much for joining us today. Some excellent education and a little bit more into the opaque window of, of private equity, equity ownership and healthcare. Um, certainly a lot more to study there as well. Okay, thank you very much. You're listening to Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett. We've been talking with Dr. Eileen Applebaum, co-director of the Center for Economic Policy and Research and a fellow at Rutgers University about private equity and healthcare. Until next time, make it an awesome week. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Ask Me MD, Medical School for the Real World with Dr. DJ Verrett. If you have a question or an idea for a show, send us an email at questions at askmemdpodcast.com. 